Welcome, friends, to The Word is Resistance, a podcast of showing up for racial justice, or SURGE. This is the podcast where we explore the weekly Christian scripture readings with an eye toward racial justice and collective liberation. My name is Nicola Torbett. I use she and her pronouns, and I'm recording this at my home, which is on the ancestral and unceded homelands of the Ohlone people in what is now known as Oakland, California. This podcast is aimed at white Christians like me who want to respond to the call to dismantle white supremacy. We recognize that as white Christians, we have our own particular work to do, that it is our responsibility to learn how to resist the forces of white Christian supremacy from which we've benefited and with which we are otherwise complicit. We are seeking to find and uproot white supremacy wherever it shows up, including in our own Christian tradition. So, how are you doing? No, really, how are you? This morning, I had a Zoom call with a group of beloveds, and as we checked in, it became clear that we are all way out at the edge of the stretch zone, edging into panic, all of us for different reasons, ostensibly. But I think there's just this fundamental uncertainty right now. The empire is crumbling all around us. Systems are breaking down, and maybe they need to. Almost certainly they need to, so that we can create another way of being together. But this right here is very unnerving. Within that larger context, this week, as we come into the big settler colonial holiday of the summer, I'm tracking one group of friends who are making their way back from Minnesota and another who are headed for D.C. Both groups will join with indigenous people who are trying to stop an oil pipeline called Line 3, designed to carry some 375,000 barrels of crude oil every day from the Alberta tar sands in Canada to the port in Superior, Wisconsin. The plan for this pipeline is to drill under the Mississippi River in at least two places, as well as to cross wild rice lakes and huge wetlands that are protected under an 1855 treaty with the Ojibwe people. If this pipeline goes through, it will essentially threaten the drinking water for the whole middle of the country. As Ojibwe leader Winona LaDuke has said, this is the same water that was here when dinosaurs were here. This is the only water we will ever know. This is the same water that my great ancestors drank from and harvested our wild rice upon. This water is sacred. Also this week, our immediate neighbors to the north are experiencing what meteorologists are calling a heat dome, with record-smashing temperatures throughout most of the Pacific Northwest. These events are connected, of course, and all of this is pretty scary. So I'm coming to this podcast wondering about a spirituality that could help us face these times with integrity, humility, courage, creativity, and deep respect for the peoples who are indigenous to this land. So with that in mind, let's turn to 2 Corinthians. We'll be looking at chapter 12, verses 2 through 10, and I'll warn you, it's a little strange One might even say woo in California terms. And that's what I'm especially interested in looking at. 
what my Western mind often identifies as woo, and what that means, and who it serves, and what we might want to do differently. We're going to be looking at part of what is often called Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, which, by the way, is not actually his second letter, but his third or fourth, maybe even fifth. But the intervening letters have gotten lost or somehow didn't make the cut for the Bible. You might remember that his first letter to the Jesus followers in Corinth addressed a series of conflicts that had arisen in the movement there. It seemed as if Paul had no longer no sooner left the Corinthians after helping them establish their chapter of the way than the chapter began to fall apart, which, if you have spent any time in present-day movements, probably feels pretty familiar. Organizing would be so much easier without the humans. Anyway, a couple of years have passed now, and Paul has heard reports about how things are going in Corinth, some good, some not so good. And the most recent thing he's heard is that some other apostles have come through teaching a different gospel, a different good news, and criticizing Paul, questioning his authority and credibility as a teacher. And Paul, as you can imagine, is pretty miffed. And that comes through in 2 Corinthians. It's never been my favorite book of the Bible. Paul reads to me as a little snarky here. And in these chapters, 11 and 12 in particular, he goes on and on about how he's not going to boast because although he certainly could boast, he doesn't need to boast because he is so, so, so above boasting. All the while, of course, boasting. But I realize that when I've read this before, I haven't applied much of a power analysis. After doing a little digging into the context for this letter, I've come to believe that there are systems of oppression at work here that are making Paul so testy. See, the rival apostles seem to be flashier, more charismatic, better speakers who more easily cultivate around themselves an air of authority. And Paul, according to some historical records, had some factors working against him. He was short, apparently and balding. And despite his skill at rhetoric, he wasn't a great public speaker. He just didn't come across as commanding to those who met him in person. And I've been thinking about what writer, performer, educator, and healer Vanessa Rochelle Lewis calls uglification, or the process by which people are dehumanized and disregarded because of things like racism, colorism, looksism, ableism, ageism, transphobia, and fatphobia. Lewis, who, by the way, is amazing and who you definitely should look up, goes on to explain how uglification impacts the opportunities people are extended and the authority and credibility they are afforded. I think Paul, at the time of this letter, is being uglified, much as black people, and especially dark-skinned black people, fat people, Aging people, especially aging women, 
and people with disabilities are uglified in our own culture. For myself, I've always tended to eschew things like titles and degrees, which I have but mostly don't use. And I remember being schooled by a couple black friends that that is all well and good for me as a white person, but when I am introducing them, I should include their titles and degrees as a way of combating uglification and making sure they are afforded some kind of authority. I get it now. It's not boasting. It's countering oppression. So this time around, I'm trying to read Paul with a sense of what he may have been up against and to listen with an ear for what he has to say to us in these times. So will you listen with me? Here's 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 through 10. I know a person in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that such a person, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard things that are not to be told, that no mortal is permitted to repeat. On behalf of such a one, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weakness. But if I wish to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will be speaking the truth, But I refrain from it so that no one may think better of me than what is seen in me or heard from me, even considering the exceptional character of the revelations. Therefore, to keep me from being too elated, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from becoming too elated. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. So, that first part, the part about being caught up into the third heaven and hearing secrets that cannot be repeated by mortals, that's kind of weird, right? Honestly, every time I've read this passage, I've just kind of skipped over that and moved on to the part about the thorn. That I can understand. Paul has something that is tormenting him. And even though I don't know what it is, no one has ever been able to identify what exactly was troubling Paul. I do know what it is like to be tormented, to have something in my life that I can't seem to shake, that I am powerless over, that I pray about seemingly to no avail, and that keeps me aware of my own limitations. In fact, even as I write this, I'm fielding phone calls from my mom, who is in the midst of a health crisis. And the need to care for her is bringing me right up against not just the systemic barriers to quality care, but my own emotional limitations and shortcomings. There are thorns all around, and certainly it's humbling. I'm leaning hard into grace. In a sense, climate change might be considered a communal thorn that we are all up against right now. We are all bound up in the factors that are exacerbating it. It's beyond anything we can shift in our own power, 
at least as individuals. And it challenges our faith that God can pull something off, given the difficulty of any kind of global cooperation in, this, in these times. So I find myself wondering about that first part, the part about the third heaven and the secret revelations, and whether there is anything there that might be helpful to us. Let's turn there now. Most people think Paul is talking about himself here, that he is the person who was caught up into the third heaven, and that he's talking about himself in the third person so as to avoid, well, boasting. Most likely, he is describing what happened in his conversion experience when he heard Jesus ask, why are you persecuting me? You know, that time when he became temporarily blind and had to be taken somewhere to recover. So this person, most likely Paul, had some kind of visceral spiritual experience in which other levels of reality were revealed to him, things that aren't usually shown to human beings and can't fully be expressed in human language. In a way that felt real and embodied, Paul experienced revelations of, in his his words, an exceptional character. And these exceptional revelations changed the entire trajectory of his life. He couldn't keep living the same way. So, all of this is a little woo, right? This talk of the third heaven and deep secret revelations. And this time through, I don't want to just dismiss it. What if there are whole other levels to reality that we can't perceive from here? What if our senses are not as reliable a gauge of reality as we think they are? And what if there are whole other ways to be, if only we could perceive these other levels of reality? For a long time, I dismissed this possibility, like I said. I think sometimes progressive Christians like me, maybe like you, tend to rationalize away anything too wooey in the Bible. The so-called parting of the Red Sea was probably the result of drought, right? Demon possession was just a sort of primitive, I use that word advisedly, understanding of mental illness or epilepsy or some other phenomenon that a scientific worldview could have explained if only they had that back then. Miraculous healings weren't really healings as we understand them today, They were sort of side effects of being restored to community after having been ostracized. And that communal piece is important. And I wonder if we are really missing out by dismissing what might be called supernatural occurrences in the Bible. Maybe there is something in the woo that we actually need. I've been thinking lately about the role of Enlightenment rationalism in what happened during the colonization of this country. The so-called Age of Enlightenment that swept through Europe in the 17th and 18th centuries emphasized the primacy of reason. It brought us the scientific method 
and along with it an emphasis on empiricism, or the idea that knowledge comes from the evidence of our senses. This intellectual movement was super optimistic about what human beings, well, wait, what certain human beings, as we'll see, could know and achieve through reason. It gave rise to a lot of scientific and technological advances, and also contributed to the Industrial Revolution, causing an increase in some living conditions in Europe, but also alienating people further from their own labor through the invention of factories and the rise of capitalism. Among other things, the possibility of manufacturing cheap cotton fabric gave birth to cotton plantations in the West Indies and here in the newly founded United States. The idea that everything could be identified and understood empirically gave rise to a pseudoscience called phrenology, which attempted to measure the size and shape of skulls in order to identify supposed character traits and intelligence which in turn helped give rise to the forms of white supremacy that are still with us today. Enslavement and genocide of those deemed intellectually and morally inferior or primitive. I'm not saying the Enlightenment was bad, exactly. Certain scientific advances have dramatically improved quality of life for many, many people. I'm just saying it was not entirely and wholly good. and especially not when we take into account the impact on all people, not just those from or descended from Europe. And I've come to understand that my tendency to dismiss spiritual things as woo is a holdover from all of that, and that it might just bolster white supremacy, even if that is not what I intend. And then there's the question of what we miss out on when we dismiss as unreal anything that does not fit our rationalist paradigm. Something's been happening to me these last few years, and I struggle to find language for much of it. I will say that I've started cultivating a present-day relationship with my ancestors, starting with those furthest back and asking them to help heal those who came later including those who were involved in genocide, colonization, and the enslavement of other human beings. In return for their help, I give offerings, sometimes things like coffee, treats, cigarettes, but often they also ask me to make reparations. I think it's them asking, in the form of donations, volunteer labor, and signal boosting of BIPOC perspectives. This, I'm coming to understand, is part of my own healing and also the healing of my ancestors. This all seems quite woo to me. I can't verify it empirically, but I can feel at some level that it is real and important. I was part of an ancestral healing workshop about a year ago. That's how I got started in this work. And in that workshop, the teacher said that he had been shown in a vision That climate change is the result of trapped CO2 in the atmosphere, yes, but also of trapped, unhealed dead. Ghosts of people who have not been properly grieved or ancestralized because of the relationships broken by historical traumas. He admitted himself that this seemed really woo, even to him, and to me too, super woo. And yet, could there be something there? 
I've also been experimenting with a belief in animism, the idea that human beings are only one kind of people, that animals and trees, water and rocks are also people with their own desires and agency. Nigerian philosopher Bayo Okomalafe urges us to recognize that there are many, many forces at work in the world, and that most of them are not under human control, that we are being acted upon constantly by other beings, powers, and principalities who have their own agency, including, just for an example, those who populate our own microbiome. We are not even fully ourselves. He writes, If we grant that our lives and bodies are materially entangled with the environment, agentially inseparable from non-human processes, then should we not take into account the ways we ourselves are being acted upon by the materials or tools in and around us? In simpler terms, if the climate activist is correct in saying that the world around us is not just a natural resource to be exploited for our whimsical pursuits of growth at all cost, and that the world by implication is alive and active and animated, then what does that do to the climate activist? In even simpler terms, if we humans are part of the world and not apart from it, then who is the activist? And more shockingly, where is power? That's Bio Okomalafe. And it's that last question that most takes my breath away. Where is power? What if there's a kind of power in the world that has nothing to do with human domination and control? What if it might be possible to ally with that power in ways that serve the flourishing of all life? I don't know. These are just the faintest whisperings in my own consciousness, nearly entirely drowned out by my conditioning within Western empiricism. Even listening for them requires a kind of humility that is new for me. But I wonder, and I hear some of this in the writing of indigenous people like Robin Wall Kimmerer and Sherry Mitchell too, there is so much wisdom that we have dismissed as primitive or irrational or woo. So I don't know what Paul experienced, what those revelations were, but I think they might be important. They might even be transformational. They might even be a kind of salvation, not necessarily a way to stay alive in this life for longer, but a way to participate more fully in life while we're here, if we are humble enough to feel them. As your call to action this week, I want to invite you to explore your own thoughts about what is woo or out there and what biases inform your thinking. What would it mean for you to open to the idea that more is happening in the universe than we humans can perceive, that there are larger forces at work, 
and that our role is to collaborate with them rather than to run the show. What would that change for you? Similarly, I invite you to think about who has authority and credibility for you and why. What cultural beliefs have you internalized around who is worth listening to and following? How might racism, lookism, transphobia, ableism, and fatphobia be influencing your assumptions about who has credibility? And finally, I invite you to check out the water protectors who are resisting line three. I'll put a bunch of resources in the transcript, including actions you can take from home or in person at the front lines. They need donations, too. That's what I've got for you this week, folks. We'd love to hear what you think of this episode and of the work we're doing here generally. What are you making of it? How are your own movement struggles unfolding, and what are you learning from those? You can interact with us on our Facebook page, look for Surge Faith, and at our podcast page on SoundCloud, search for The Word is Resistance. We appreciate your feedback very much and are especially eager to hear from BIPOC folks and people who are not Christian. How are we doing? What's working and what's not? We love your input. And guess what? Next week, unbelievably, we'll be putting out the 200th episode of this podcast. It's going to be a really special one, so don't forget to subscribe and listen in. Together, we are building up a new world. Or maybe it is being built up in and around us. Either way, we are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for granting us permission to use the song by that name in this podcast. It was written by Dr. Vincent Harding, and here it's being sung at a movement choir practice led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. Finally, I want to thank our sound editor for this week, Max Pearl. Max, so much love and gratitude to you. That's it for now, friends. So many blessings to you for exceptional revelations, deep transformation, and loving connection as we build up a new world. Until then, I'm Nicola Torbett.